Welcome to the Reflective Teaching in a Digital Age podcast series. In these conversations, we discuss technology-inspired changes in STEM education. The title of today's episode is Technology in STEM Learning. Nicole and I will talk with Chad Dorsey, who is the president and CEO of the Concord Consortium. Chad's perspective of online learning and the role of technology in education more broadly is supported by his extensive professional experience across the fields of science, education, and technology. Thank you so much for your time and for being with us today. If we can start with perhaps a brief overview of the work that's happening at Concord Consortium, especially for some of our listeners who might not be familiar with it. Sure, by all means, and I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks a lot for inviting me. I think these kinds of conversations are ones that we need to have these days when we are um, both when we're stuck in the middle of um, wherever we are, but also as we're starting to use technology in ways that many people may not have chosen to or thought about very much. Um, you know, it's it's really vital that we have these kinds of conversations. Um, so. The Concord Consortium is a place where conversation about technology is really at home. Um, we've been around for over 25 years, and we've been thinking about educational technology for STEM learning um, during all of it. So we're uh, focused uh, or we're centered in the Boston area in Concord, Massachusetts, uh, but we also have a, a, a group in the Bay Area in California, and um, we have about 50, 45, 50 people or so and um, uh, work on a wide variety of projects that are funded by the National Science Foundation for the most part uh, around um, all manner of STEM education, um, specifically focusing on things like data, modeling, and simulation, uh, and thinking about them um, often within the K-12 sphere, sort of middle school and high school in particular, um, thinking a lot about the ways that technology and teaching and learning intersect. So the kind of thoughtful reflection that you were talking about is is really at the, the heart of the conversations that we have and the research that we do and the design that we're involved in um, really all the time. I guess I would ask, who's your um, usual customers in terms of, is it K through 12, you know, is it university people? Who do you normally cater to? Yeah, I think that most of the work that we do, really, I would say the sweet spot is um, in the middle to high school range, probably, um, you know, upper middle school to high school in some ways. Um, but really, we have um, work that stretches all the way down to primary um, education. And um, a lot of the products and, and tools that we design are being used in uh, higher education, especially in um, the first couple of years of higher ed or in two-year colleges as well. So there's a, a, a broad range, um, but K-12 education is really the, the kind of main place that we put, we hang our hat, I think. Generally, you know, say even from middle school or high school, who usually gets interested in the, in the products that your company is working on? Are those individual teachers or is it more kind of a higher, maybe state level or district level? We do get some interest from um, from both, but I think I think it, individual teachers are really the primary um, drivers of, of a lot of the use of things that we do. Teachers who recognize the value of technology for trying to get across ideas that they're you know, otherwise struggling with, or um, who have 
had some experience themselves in understanding things like modeling or simulation, those tend to be the ones who are really at the forefront oftentimes. And the work that we do tends to be um, you know, innovation first in, in a lot of ways, so that uh, the teachers who are really into trying to find cutting edge resources tend to know us um, well. Um, and you know, those teachers spread to, to others. Um, at the state level and in other cases, I think that people start to see the body of resources that we've developed over time as something that's really meaningful um, to offer to teachers. So we definitely you know, work with states and, and other you know, groups of districts to make sure that people understand our resources are available. Um, I didn't say at the outset, but I should have, that our resources are free, they're openly available, um, they're open source and are you know, available for anybody anywhere. So that provides a lot of incentive for people who are interested in using these things to, to spread them you know, among their districts and schools and, and to others. Thinking about um, a recent blog entry that uh, you had at Concord Consortium website, the title, by the way, of this blog is, Is Remote Learning a Panacea for the Pandemic? And you start by saying that you are worried that we might return to normal. And, you know, at first it was a little bit unexpected, but then when you start reading, you understand how important this conversation to have. Can you elaborate a little bit? What do you mean by that? Yeah, by, by all means. Um, you know, I think that, um, and, and there's a question mark at the end of that title as to whether, you know, sort of an open rhetorical question as to whether this is a, a, pandem- a, a panacea. Um, I think that, you know, the the main main thing I've been thinking about as people have, dived into technology use, whether they like it or not, is the latter part of that statement. The, the people who um, haven't liked it, don't like it, are, are concerned with this, and um, for good reason. I mean, there's lots to, to, to not like, to hate about the situation we're in and about the way that it's forced us into education that you know none of us like, and I'm a parent with kids who are going through this at the same time. Um, it's not what any of us would choose. And technology is at the center of the way that we interact and conduct the, the sort of teaching and learning um, that we're involved in right now. The concern that I have is um, sort of twofold. Um, one of them is the equating of technology that we're using now to the crumminess of the situation and the, the kind of effect that I think can come along with that which is, you know, say, oh, yeah, distance learning and remote learning and technology, and it's all you know, like, oh, man, I can't wait to get past all of that. And the, the corollary is equally concerning, which is I can't wait to get past all of that and back to the way we're used to doing things when what we're used to doing is not, as you say in the title of the podcast, is not reflective is not thinking oftentimes about um, the ways that we can really use technology to help students you know, explore and discover and learn STEM topics in ways that are really rich and, and deep. There's just far too much education that's, and, and I love teaching, I've been a teacher myself, um, my parents were teachers and so I'm not denigrating teachers, but the way that things have happened over time in society um, there's a lot of education that is more transactional, that is sage on the stage, um, where teachers um, may be providing information and thinking that that's sort of the end of it. I think that's improved a lot. 
over time. I think that people are understanding a lot more about the need for three-dimensional learning, about the need for student-centered um, learning. Uh, at the same time, I think that there are a lot of situations that we're in still in education that are not ideal um, for learners. And I get concerned that that educational technology, that technology will be seen as um, something that goes along with the problems that people are having with education and not as a way to deepen education for learners the way that we, you know, the way that we recognize that Concord it really can. Mm-hmm. So what are some ideas um, you might share with our readers about how to use technology in a more integrative way rather than it's a pandemic. Let me just mm-hmm. take all my slides and put them online and talk over them. <laughs> exactly. No, that's a that's a great question. And and you know, with with all that said, I mean, we do understand as well that um, that even in the best of of situations for this kind of learning, we're not going to get to the place that we really want to um, while we're stuck in remote learning, um, regardless. So um, you know, it, it's less than ideal no matter what. That said. Um, I think there are a lot of ways that we can think about using technology to open up learning, even in remote learning times. Um, you know, so some examples might be um, that um, there are cases where um, teachers might be lamenting the fact that they can't in science, lamenting the fact that they can't do um, you know the sort of hands-on labs that they're used to doing because they can't be face to face with their students. Um, uh, yeah, I would lament that as well as a former science teacher. At the same time, um, there's an opportunity in every issue and every problem. and I think one of the opportunities here is to start to ask questions about what what places in science learning, um, are typically problematic when it comes to doing hands-on labs. So if, for example, you want your students to learn about um, genetics um, or ecosystems in biology, um, those are cases where um, you are really at, at a loss to do a hands-on lab um, where the essence of the lab is to get students to engage in sort of true inquiry the way that we know that students should. Um, you just can't do those kinds of things because um, it's not possible to do the kinds of experiments that we want you to be able to do. Um, you know, other examples are cases where you might want students to, um, you know, really engage deeply with um, data around a topic. Um, those are things that you can do on the computer, um, and it doesn't necessarily matter where you are. So you might need to provide a data set or think differently about how students um, you know, generate the producing data. Um, but you can open up the conversations when you have tools that give students a chance to dig in richly into the, into the data. Um, I think we found that teachers and students can engage in um, conversations, inquiry, that is um, maybe even richer and deeper than they would have otherwise, um, sometimes it's taking advantage of the the recognition that there is a different tool and everybody's available to think about it differently and and how about, how about we try this? Um, but in, in many cases, it's really identifying that there are places where technology excels. And in those places, um, you know, when that matches STEM or meets STEM learning, um, then those are opportunities that we can take advantage of no matter where we are.
You know, I think it's also interesting, and you write about it, this belief and something that many of us grew up with is experiencing teaching when the teacher basically tells you the information. Right. Um, this very common model that we always <laughs> say is not very effective. <laughs> but yet, I think especially the ones who might have gone through the system and did okay, <laughs> you know, they feel like, mm-hmm. well, w- what's wrong with that? I learned mm-hmm. this way. So it's really mm-hmm. hard to rethink and reimagine different way. And I think many of us have seen the phenomenon of what Nicole said, basically moving whatever you taught in your engineering or your science courses, moving it online and basically trying to replicate online what you've been doing face to face. What's important mm-hmm. for instructors, in your opinion, to think about when they start to rethinking integration of technology and teaching online? How not to be the sage on the stage, but sort of move back and give a little bit more um, space for the students to explore and be the drivers of their Mm -hmm. learning? That's a great question. And I think, um, you know, if anything, um, you know, in the sort of technology world, we often, um, you know, make the joke about something being a feature, not a bug. Um, And I think that in some ways the... The ways in which our hands are tied by um, the current situation um, could be looked at as a as a feature rather than a bug, um, which is to say, when you throw up your hands and say, my students are never going to listen to me lecture for 45 minutes on this something, oh, man, I've got to do something different. Um, you know, how can that be an opportunity? How can that be an opportunity to invite students to provide their own perspectives? to give them a chance to um, look at something, um, you know, from 20 different directions at the same time and come back to it around conversation. It's, it's, a, it's a situation that is forcing us to put more power into the hands of learners, um, which is quite honestly what we should be doing all the time. Um, it's a situation that is causing very interesting angst about um, things like cheating, which I remember that conversation, um, my goodness, it was back in 2005, 2004, um, when I was in Maine, and um, we were, they were just you know, in the middle of the first one-to-one laptop initiative in the country, and um, people who were involved there were saying, um, you know, if you're worried about your students Googling something, probably you're asking the wrong questions. Here's a way to ask, you know, if you're asking questions that can be answered by Googling, um, then you're not developing the kinds of deep conversation and thinking that students should be engaged in anyway. And it's it's interesting and sad to hear it coming around at the same time again here. But, um, you know, imagine that, you know, our... Are we expecting that the workers in the world today and tomorrow are doing things that you can Google when, um, you know, when there are AI programs that are writing poetry um, that are indistinguishable from, you know, from what other people are writing now? I mean, probably not. So it's a real opportunity to recognize that um, when we put power into the hands of students, um, not only are we maybe just answering the you know the needs of the day in this weird educational situation but perhaps we're actually doing the thing that you know we should be doing in education all along um, which is recognizing that the center of learning is around students and the most powerful opportunities are the ones where they're engaged themselves as inquirers in the world 
Mm-hmm. So thank that's a really good that's a really good what you said um Chad I was thinking about as you were talking how people tend to use the I don't want to use the word cop out but they tend to say well students resist anything new but even in my own personal experience um teaching first years this semester in such an environment a class that was meant to be very much project based hands on in the classroom i have found i needed to be more intentional and that if you are clear to the students why you are assigning this that there is a lot less resistance cuz they are fully mm. functioning working individuals who can understand if you just explain so i guess the question i'm getting to is what mm. are tips or tricks or strategies that practitioners can use to reduce that kind of resistance that is likely to come that's a good question um you know and and again i'm a little farther away from being a working educator now than i than i used to be but we certainly work with lots of of educators and find that you know i think that um <clears throat> that these same kinds of things do come up over and over again in terms of what's you know what really opens up the uh, opportunities so um you know imagining so i like that notion of being transparent about the the reasons um and, and i think that any time we let down our guard as educators and become humans for you know kids students whatever term you want to use i think that that's a that that's empowering for both sides rather than disempowering um because and for going to say you know the the situations that we want people to work in in the world are not ones where you're trying to work you know um as sort of antipodes with somebody you're trying to work side by side as collaborators in workplaces and in communities and what have you so the more the more collaborative we can give students to be in many cases the better i think i think that you know the kinds of situations that students respond to are the ones where they have they understand that they have some agency and they know that they're valued in that and they recognize that the exercises are not ones that are hollow in some way and goodness knows you know we all know and i know as a parent now too that that um you know kids see through a hollow exercise in in a minute and as i wrote partly about that in that same blog post that you were mentioning tasha the the sort of compromise that happens in education that ted sizer so you know um profoundly identified many years ago where we just sort of say well we'll just go along to get along and we'll we once this is done then you will be done you get a piece of paper and you know I'm going to the next year and it's all good um and recognizing that it takes more effort to teach another way but um it's you know that those are the situations that are powerful that are memorable when we think back to the the teaching and learning that made a difference for us you know it's not the situations where we were just sitting in a lecture to get by it's the ones where we recognize that we had an opinion that mattered and something that we were thinking about might have been you know interesting or new to somebody else it changed the way that they thought it was a new perspective when we did when we had that aha moment that you know that we uncovered something all of those are things that i think we can give students um i think we can do it when we recognize that they're you know that they are powerful learners and that they're bringing something to the table and when they know that we recognize that um so you know that's the kind of thing we need i um i frequently have been talking we've been thinking a lot about um science experiments and the sort of 
another one of these cut and dried things in um, in teaching and learning in science is this sort of scientific method uh, myth in some ways that that you know that that's as if that's what scientists really ever do, which is not at all. And along with that, the recognition that most of science or a huge chunk of it comes before the experiment in the messing around with things and uncovering something. I forget the, the you know, the quote, but it's the, um, I think it was from, uh, it's, it's probably misattributed to Pasteur or somebody, but um, it says that you know, science doesn't come with um, Eureka, it comes with a, that's funny. And people starting to ask, you know, that, that sort of begins at that point where they start to ask questions. And so we've been thinking a lot about what it means to put students into that place. And when I think back to my own education, um, you know, I always talk about how it's that there's that rare moment that we all recognize, you know, having been in the science class here or there, where something goes wrong in an experiment and the teacher comes over and you see that sort of leaning forward and that wrinkled brow and you realize for this tiny instant that you don't know and they don't know what's next. And, you know, that doesn't last long, but there's this moment where you start to experiment together and start to say, what well, is this something? And you realize that, ah, you know, there, I've got as much, you know, value to this conversation as the teacher's opinion does too. And we're figuring this out. And, you know, that's the way that, that's the way that science is. That's the way that engineering is for real. Nobody knows the answer to what the thing is that you're supposed to be designing or what the thing is you're supposed to be discovering. Um, but, but we don't give students the opportunity to identify that in their learning all the time. Um, so, you know, that's a long way around of saying that the more that we give students agency one way or another and the more that we help them recognize that we are, you know, that we are giving that to them. I think the more we open up opportunities for real learning, and I think that we can do that in this day and age. And you know, it starts in some ways with the why, the rationale, and with being really transparent about the kinds of things that you're expecting them to do um, and bring to the table with this. Uh, listening to your response, a couple of things when you said that there is a moment when you're doing a science experiment and you see the teacher and some other things you refer to, kind of we all have those memories of special episodes now learning. And there is a lot of, um, I guess, concern that comes out and specifically about online learning. How do you bring this emotion, those moments, this connection into online? How do you think about that? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. Um and you know there are some interesting answers to it, and I, and I by no means have the, by all the answers. Um, but there are some interesting answers that might be might seem unorthodox right now as well, based upon our past experience. So, one of the things that we've been um, talking about a decent amount around our halls lately is the unstated assumption that um, remote learning is always synchronous um, video mediated learning um, and that relationships are always in that mode and I, we haven't written a lot about it recently here but we have a lot in the past because um, the concrete consortium you know having been around for 25 years um, we were really pioneers in um, the quote-unquote old kind of remote learning which is um, sort of online courses that are you know, text-based, mediated by um, by a teacher, and you know, we 
gave birth to the what was then the virtual high school, now VHS Learning, the first nation's first online high school back in um, the 1999-2000, and um, really had done a lot of work with uh, online learning even before that. And out of that came a lot of recognition about what it means to do powerful learning um, with a group of people at a distance who convene together. Um, and it's been very interesting. I still, I'm still on the board um, of VHS Learning, and they're still very active really around the world um, and nationally um, with these kinds of online um, asynchronous courses. There's a real power that comes across there when you have a teacher facilitating well online learning like that. Um, it's an art, and it's not, um, not something that you learn overnight um, because it, it has a lot of sort of unrecognized um, skills and sort of techniques that go along with it to make sure that you are building community in that sort of online space, that you are acknowledging students in the way that they do things, that people you know, do get, that you're teasing out their voice. Uh, but when you talk to students who have gone through that experience, they say it is as powerful or much oftentimes more powerful than the synchronous in-person learning experiences that they have because they, because there's a richness to the kind of learning that can happen in that um, asynchronous space. Um, and there's a willingness to um, contribute on the part of many learners who might not contribute in a synchronous video space. I know even for my own kids, they're often not interested in piping up in the middle of a Zoom conversation. There's a weird artificiality. They may not be interested in participating as much in class, you know, some students, um, but they will often participate in sort of written conversations online. So um, I guess I'm not necessarily putting that out as a, another panacea here for this, but but as an interesting counterpoint, perhaps, to the kind of assumptions that we've been making right now about learning. Because we have seen for literally a quarter century the real power of the kind of learning that can come from students in asynchronous remote learning space. And, and it's interesting to see some of those techniques being brought into this kind of synchronous and asynchronous learning that's happening now with video and, and otherwise. Um, and we're we're asking you know, which which of those might be brought back um, even more. Um, it doesn't quite answer the question, but it, I think it's a it's a counterpoint to the kinds of things that we are that we're assuming. And and I think it goes along that same strand of saying uh, a modality of saying okay, we're all in the situation. And I fall into this trap too, right? Okay, we're all in the situation now. How can we reproduce what we had before? Well, do we have to? Is that the way you expect? I mean, is you know, writing with a word processor the same as writing was longhand? I mean, it's not, and they're both valid, but, you know, you do a lot of things differently because a word processor exists that you never could think of before. You write completely differently because you know you can revise. Well, what do we do when we're in a space where technology is the main mediator? Um, I don't know that most people have thought through that in the same way that folks might have, you know, when they're when they were deliberate about online learning and reflective about online learning back when and, and have been throughout. I guess I'm wondering if for someone who is interested in applying or integrating technology in their class, at be it whatever level, and if you had to give them three or five or how many ever key actionable items, what would those be? 
That's a good question. I think the first one would be to um, find the places where technology really adds um, and focus on those. So when it's, it's something like STEM learning, looking for the topics um, or the, the sort of key concepts that are um, really advantaged by technology. Um, you know, the cases where, for example, as I was describing before, where models and simulations allow you to do experiments that you couldn't otherwise. The cases where um, technology tools allow you to think in a way that you couldn't otherwise. For example, you know, if you're modeling dynamic systems, um, it's very difficult to do that with post-it notes and, and paper. And some of the modeling tools that we have make that much more dynamic and, and available for, for learners. So, but there are lots of things that you don't need to do that way. I mean, you should get out in a forest and dig up the, the soil and you know, pull out a hand lens. And everybody should do that at all ages, especially at elementary ages. And you know, I was a physics teacher. I'm not advocating that we you know, go to a virtual physics experiment for everything that we do. Um, certainly, there's, you know, when you interact with the world, there's a lot of value, that, very important value that comes with that. Um, but matching, matching the learning opportunities to the technologies that are powerful and, and choosing those carefully is one of the key tips I think I'd give. I guess another one um, is a, one of the strands that I was harping on a little bit before, which is um, recognizing that students' agency um, is really important and that and um, honoring and acknowledging what they bring to the table in the ways that you create learning situations, in what uh, opportunities you pose for students, and finding ways to get out of the way and let them use tools and experiences um, to you know, bring their ideas to the fore, I think is powerful. It's good advice for not in technology learning as well, but if you're trying to integrate learning with technology, it's not a demonstration, it's an opportunity for students to think more powerfully with some, you know, some kind of tool or situation that they have at hand. And um, you know, I guess the, you know, I think the other kinds of things often go to really sort of what we know is powerful about teaching, find the ways that students can um, collaborate around and with technology. Um, and yes, in remote learning that might be more difficult, um, but I don't think it's, a, it's not um, impossible by any means, so that they're able to um, recognize the, the value that comes in having to talk with one another, having to provide um, evidence for their reasoning um, to peers in a way that um, makes it you know, more powerful than it would be if they're just waiting to hear if that nod says that they got the right answer, so to speak. You know, I think those kinds of things are um, powerful in any learning situation, and technology can provide richer evidence in some cases or provide um, mediation for collaboration in ways that it might not exist otherwise. Um, but it's the it's not the end; it's the means, um, regardless. So, and, and I would I guess that's that's sort of the essence of all this is find places where technology is the means to powerful teaching, um, not where it's an end in itself by by any means. I really like that. Yeah, you know what also made me think, and I think something we touched on, like this idea is about how we learn, because learning happens at home. Obviously, it happens in school. And I feel like, again, going back to that, for many parents, that it could be difficult to think about the new reality and the place of technology in learning. 
and and this idea that well why my son and my daughter are not learning long division or multiplication and why they're skipping that this arguments what's important even if the teacher sometimes could take a stride forward and do something differently for a lot of parents this this immediately could be a reaction but how come they're not going to develop <laughs> their brain power the way we did what kind of mind shifts we need to do as parents and obviously as teachers to understand what the place of technology is and i think you said about it's the means of getting somewhere but how do we think about it in maybe simple mm. terms because mm-hmm. i think to some it might be just scary you know mm-hmm. it feels like we're not doing something like we used to do and we might be missing out on things mhm i think it's a great question and you know one of the interesting things about this current um situation we find ourselves in is that parents are getting for better better and for worse i think um you know just depending upon the reactions are getting um a view into the way the sausage is made with education um like never before you know parents are at home at the kitchen table when their kids are zooming or whatever and you know granted it's not a view into what the you know quote unquote real learning uh, might be like in the classroom it's all you know, compromised in one way or another but um but they're much closer to what it means for students to be taught long division or not and you know the questions of why and and sort of the 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 messiness of how that happens um and i think they are also seeing i guess and maybe in some cases it's not fair but i think they're also seeing um some of the compromised uses of technology that end up happening um in learning too you know whether they're it's the video that you watch instead of doing something or the case where technology is not you know it's sort of clearly not effective for the thing that's you know trying to happen um you know the parents are there to see that as well um so i think that there are some caveats and and concerns that come up with that that parents might have at the same time you know it's I feel for teachers very much all the time. Um again, having been one, I know it's hard. I can't even imagine what it's like to be in the situation and what I hear from teachers themselves is that it's, you know, just you know, incredibly incredibly harrowing and, and complicated all the time. And having that sort of exposure is doubly difficult where, you know, parents are already at the wit's end and frustrated and what have you. So, so I think that there's a lot that I think we just need to recognize is part of the moment and and um you know not necessarily involved in that um the teaching and learning piece as much as the baggage that goes around it right now but uh, i think that you know, with respect to the question of sort of technology and parents taking it up i think there's there's an interesting sort of moment that um i don't know how we navigate and we're probably not navigating it well to use the fact that parents are more at the table literally and figuratively to um identify some of these opportunities and i don't know you know i can't put my hand on examples um i'm sure there are a few out there um that are kind of like what what you were describing earlier about the the rationale um you know if we give parents a rationale for what's happening if we bring them a little bit more into the loop um are there ways that they can be more receptive to the the uses of technology that we're bringing in are there ways that they can be mutually supportive as well and you know and sort of help with this there's a i mean it's complicated to bring parents into this because they were taught the way we were all taught 
And, you know, the, we've seen it even more recently with the Common Core, the, the, the new, new math problem of, like, what is this, matrix multiplication? I don't understand this something. You know, there's a lot that, that comes in that picture of bringing parents into the fold of research-based teaching and learning. Um, so, so there are complexities in it. However, I think that it is an opportunity, and I think that um, one of the things that, it, you know, the optimistic moments that, you know, that we all sort of have every now and then in this um, middle of this crazy world um, is that there's, there is an opportunity, there are regular opportunities for parents to become closer to what education means and for their kids and to understand their kids better as learners and to see... Uh, to, are there ways that we can use that as a lever to have a bigger conversation about teaching and learning as we go forward? And you know, when this is all said and done, you know, there's no question that every parent will understand their kids as learners better. Um, how do we use that next year and the year after and the year after um, to open up opportunities for what parents are willing to support? Because goodness knows there are lots of times in the previous world when it wasn't the kids that were the problem. It was the parents and the teachers that were the resistance to, you know, really great things happening sometimes. Um, maybe maybe there's an opportunity. Uh, I don't know. Well, it, it's just interesting to think generally what schools should be, because what are we really preparing the students if things are mm -hmm. changing so fast? And like you said, the AI can write poems and things, you know, what skills will be of value? Mm -hmm. um, so I think that <laughs> that's another big yeah. conversation. <laughs> No, it definitely is. And, you know, and technology comes in there as well in, you know, recognizing that, you know, we're preparing um, today's students for jobs that don't exist. It's a, it's a trope in some ways, but it's completely true. I mean, I think about it all the time when I see, you know, it's my favorite little pastime to try to imagine the, you know, what the, what the titles of jobs will be, you know, 30 years in the future when these kids are, are in the middle of the workplace. And, and we're seeing them now. I mean, there's, I was reading a story the other day about a, um, dance choreographers who are working together with robots and AI algorithms to and, and seeing the interplay that comes in um, changing the way that dance happens or identifying movements that they never would have identified before. Merce Cunningham was doing this 20 years ago, um, you know, and so you know, AI, you know, robot choreographer probably wouldn't have been something we'd imagine as a job title, you know, 15 years ago, but very much so now and 20 years from now. And who knows how many other things there will be that, you know, we're, that we can't imagine now. So the main point being that um, we can't imagine preparing, you know, what, what we're preparing kids for in terms of specifics. Um, we need to give them the ability to be critical thinkers and problem solvers and understand how to bring tools to bear. Um, and if there's anything, you know, even just as a raw technology or non-technology sort of educator, parent, or what have you, that I think is the most important, it's that, and we think this at Concord too, in the essence of why we're involved in STEM education, we've talked about this too. Um, I mean, the secret is it's not, yeah, we like science, we're all geeks, we, it's, it's really great stuff, but it's not because of the content, it's because Science has this opportunity, and probably engineering too, like no other, to help you realize that you can ask and answer your own questions, and that um, you know you're forced to do that by the time you get through science or engineering in some way. And um, if you can do that, then you can do anything. If you can realize that, oh, that's an interesting tool. 
I, that person who's using it, one, you know, at one point they never knew how, they didn't know anything about it and they learned how to do that. So therefore I can do that too. And, and then you start to look at tools as opportunities for, you know, transforming the way that you interact with the world and processes and ideas and things as, you know, just tools in the tool belt. Uh, if we can get learners to that place, then they're at the point where, yeah, they can learn to be an AI choreographer, but they can also, you know, they can realize that the tools of an AI choreographer could be used for, goodness knows, quantum something that we can't even imagine today because it doesn't exist. Um, and that's, that's what we need to be creating in our learners. Just one question, because you kind of talk about basically if we don't reflect on what's happening right now and we don't take any important lessons, we'll go back to the old normal. But there's a hope that we'll go to some kind of new normal after the pandemic mm-hmm. is over. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, what this new normal should be or should have mm-hmm. and what kind of relationship with technology we should have? Right. That's a good question. I think... I think that, I mean, I think we will see some really great things come out of this. And, you know, and I think that we'll, um, and I think that, uh, while I think that the sort of expectation that everything is going to be changed is, you know, maybe, um, a, a little bit, uh, ignoring the, the long history of education's ability to not change. Um, I do think that we recognized, um, I mean, for all that we've been sort of hemming and hawing about, for example, the video conferencing um, assumptions that are there, uh, we won't be able to come out of this pandemic um, without a clear realization that that technology can connect us. We won't come out of it. There's no way we'll come out of this without realizing that we could do things differently than we expected that we could before. I mean, so many assumptions have been washed away and we've done so many things differently by necessity. And I think, and, um, and as teachers, I think people will not come out of this um, with the same sort of level of, um, uh, I don't want to say naivete, but but in the, the raw sense, just of not understanding that there are resources in the world. I mean, we, it was easy to not know a, lo- a lot of what was out there. And I think people probably still don't to some degree. But... Um, but there, people's eyes have been open to a lot of things, um, a lot of resources, a lot of ideas, a lot of tools, a lot of modes of, of interacting. And I think that that, I think there will be, I think the real window of opportunity comes in probably about a year or so when people are realizing that they're back to whatever, um, but recognizing that something, you know, that, that they know that they saw something new. And, um, okay, now that we're settled, now what do we do with that? With that realization, that recognition, that saying, okay, now if we could have the best of both worlds, what, what would that be? Mm-hmm. And that's where I hope that we can come back together and say, okay, now that we've taken a deep breath, now that we can look around, um, yeah, that was some, some good stuff there. And I think we'll see a lot. I mean, I think we'll see a lot of the technology. I think we'll see some cases without technology. I'm frankly hopeful that we'll realize that the world doesn't need to be so fast. <laughs> it was kind of nice to slow down. <laughs> So maybe we'll find a lot of things we didn't expect along the way. Interesting. That, that's a that's a really interesting place to end. Chad, thank you. Thank, thank you so you. much for talking with us today. Thank you for your time. Thank you as well. It's fascinating and, and really fun to, to think about in, in the middle of a crazy world. It's fun to think about the future.